Makes you want to join them. All right. We, um, we're continuing our, our series the last three weeks. We've been talking about words. Uh, we began this with the, with the book of James. As, uh, about two Sundays ago, we were looking at the instructions uh, concerning James and how they matter. Um, they, uh, they reveal our heart, uh, something that Jesus himself brought up in Matthew 12. Uh, and so as it reveals our heart and words matter, these are things that Jesus himself will judge one day. According to Matthew 12, he will judge every idle or careless word. So these things are important. But not only are they important because they reveal our heart, they also form our heart. Our own words form our heart as well as the hearts of others. Um, it has a creative power within them. But one of the things that's really important is that the words that are said to God and said from God have the power to heal our words to others. And so with that, in the last two Sundays, I've been talking about the words said around Easter time. And so last Sunday being Palm Sunday, we considered what words were said uh, in those moments as there's Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and, and considering uh, those words of inevitable hope and praise. Uh, we looked at the words that were uh, done out of fear and insecurity. And then we saw that Jesus brought out that there would be irrepressible words of praise. And so as we go to this day, being Easter, I want to talk about the words said, the last word said, on the cross, and something really unique, the first word said when raised from the dead, raised from the dead. Now we know what, uh, perhaps maybe what our words, our first words were. Um, my mom tells me my first words were, uh-oh, uh, somewhat indicative of things to come. Uh, had already experienced of many accidents. So that was my first words. One of my daughter's first words was hello, or Hi. Uh, the next daughter was bye. Uh, and so you got a whole conversation going on. But, but you know, the, the last words, those are powerful, are they not? Last words being said. I, um, in fact, it, it's somewhat intriguing to us that there's uh, people who have compiled lists of last words said of various uh, notable people. Joseph Wright was a linguist who edited the English Dialect Dictionary. Any guesses what his last word was? Dictionary. Dictionary was his last words. Blues singer Bessie Smith died saying, I'm going, but I'm going in the name of the Lord. Frank Sinatra died after saying, I'm losing it. George Orwell's last written words, at 50, everyone has the face he deserves. Interesting, he died at the age of 46. Not quite making it there. It's interesting as we read how many people as they're dying, the last words were regarding their wife, the ones they loved. Uh, you see that over and over again where they would just mention the name of their wife and the love they had for them. Um, you keep on reading Harriet Dubman. Tubman died in 1913 with her family around and they sang together. Her last words were, swing low, sweet chariot. Sir Isaac Newton died. He was humble. 
He said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore, seashore and diverting myself now and then and finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, while the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. That's some kind of last phrase. Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci said, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. It's kind of indicted for the rest of us, you know. One man, a murderer, right before the fi- shooting range, the firing squad said, any last request? He said, yes, a bulletproof vest. Last words being said. Benjamin Franklin, laying dying at the age of 84, his daughter told him to change position in bed so he could breathe more easily. Franklin's last words were, a dying man can do nothing easy. Groucho Marx famously said, this is no way to live. Last words being said. Some of these, as I read about the ones speaking to their wife, would just kind of bring a little, little choke in your throat. Um, Sir Arthur Cornendole at 71 turned to his wife and said, You are wonderful. Then clutched his chest and died. Writer T.S. Eliot was only able to whisper one word as he died, Valerie, the name of his wife. Actor Michael Landon, best known, of course, for Little House on the Prairie, uh, died of cancer in 91. His family gathered around his bed and his son said it was time to move on. Landon said, you're right. It's time. I love you all. These poignant words that sometimes capture a lifetime are at least things that matter to them. Some of them are funny. Uh, some of them wit with wit. Some of them tragic. But when you consider the words of Jesus, uh, and just for a second, let me just bring the context of, of kind of what we're looking at. Uh, when we consider Jesus' words. What was his context? Well, uh, as those who study the crucifix and and what is done, uh, most people believe that the nails were were placed into uh, his wrist, not so much his hands uh, to to be able to uh, support the weight, but as such into his wrist it would have severed tendons that connected to the shoulders, uh, purposely done so that when you're on the cross, you only have your back to be able to gasp some air. And as you're arching your back, trying to gasp some air, your weight is going onto your feet, which tragically, painfully is nailed together uh, with massive nails into the wood. Every breath was painful. And yet the pain would cause you to collapse where then you would suffocate, and there your natural impulse pulses just the cycle of pain from pain to pain. So consequently, to have enough air to say anything brings all the more poignancy to the last words of Jesus Christ on the cross. I want you to look at this as we consider, we're going to look at a collection of different passages that compile uh, the words of Christ for us. You can see some of these in John uh, chapter 20. You'll see some in Luke chapter 23. We're going to start 
with Luke chapter 23 and consider what was being said. Luke chapter 23, verse 34. As everyone was mocking Jesus, making fun of him in various ways, daring him to come down to prove himself to everyone, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not what they know what they are doing. You remember the words reveal the heart. This is the heart of of Jesus. This is the heart of God in the flesh. What would it look like if God was to be crucified on the cross by his creation? It would have this heart cry that says with every strength gasping of air, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. As you consider this, know that while we celebrate the cross, why we celebrate the resurrection is because the dying, dying breath, the dying words was issuing out an extreme amount of forgiveness that extends not to just those who physically put him on the cross, but those, according to scripture, whose sin led him there. That's you, that's me. When I see Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It is a statement that no matter what your sin is, no matter the shame that you feel that isolates you from everyone else, including God, Jesus is saying to you and has it recorded for you in his word. He he put his weight upon the pierced feet to be able to muster out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So we keep on reading in Luke chapter 23. I think you're going to see the intensity of this. In verse 43, it has the story of two criminals that are nailed up on the cross with Jesus. Now, you need to understand that the term used is insurrectionist. Uh, that Jesus was labeled and categorized with the insurrectionists. And so what does that mean? That means they were using violence to help overthrow a government. You know what we call that today? Terrorist. Isn't that kind of how we think of terrorist? So according to the Roman standard, here are two terrorists that Jesus is crucified with. One of them joins in with the crowd and says, you know, Jesus, as if you are all that they say you are, if you are who you say you are, why don't you prove yourself and come down from the cross and save me too. But then one of the thieves, or one of, we call them thieves, the insurrectionists, one that was there with them, the criminals, said to Jesus and said to the buddy, the criminal mocking, don't you see We get our just deserves here on the cross. We deserve to be crucified, but this one is innocent. This one does not deserve. And then he cries out in a prayer to Jesus, Will you remember me? And Jesus responds, Today you shall be with me in paradise. So we take this earlier statement of God forgive, and now we're making it specific to a person who deserves to be a capital punishment according to Rome, who is a, a criminal, a thief, a, a terrorist, if you will, that is saying, you know, 
God, I need mercy. Will you remember? And notice the promise that Jesus says that he is gasping uh, as the criminal is gasping and said, will you remember me? Jesus, too, is putting his weight upon the nail-pierced feet so he can have the air and simply to give assurance to him, today you shall be with me in paradise. Every once in a while someone asks me, you know, what happens when you die? Uh, do you just kind of lay in the grave? Are you sleeping there for some while? What, what is happening? I said, well, you know, I don't know all the ins and outs, but I know that Jesus gave assurance to the man on the cross. He says, this day you will be with me in paradise. That means he's not just sleeping in some tomb somewhere, that he is uh, there in the presence with Jesus at that day. This is the hope that we have for death and for life, but it's also to say the intensity of how God is willing to forgive. We keep on reading. We're going to go to the book of John 19. John 19 The third statement on the cross. We have, according to John, a few witnesses that are there. One of them is described as Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Now we know from other gospel accounts that James and Joseph, as well with a man named Simon, are brothers of Jesus. And so when we see uh, the mother of James and Joseph, this is the Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so John 19, verse 26 through 27, this third statement, as he gasps and, and, and puts the painful uh, pressure on his feet to make this statement, Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. Some things that we want to bring out about this is that Jesus is not only God, but he's also human. And as such, he has God-given responsibilities. And so he is endorsing this statement, we take care of our family. We take care of a mother that I am not going to die without making sure there's some continuation of the responsibilities God the Father has given to God the Son as a man. To say, I'm going to care for the human mother that I've been entrusted to and she is entrusted with me. But what's note here is that Jesus doesn't say James. He doesn't say Joseph. He doesn't say Simon, the other biological brothers. He says John, one that has been following with Jesus. He is making sure that there's someone that is exposed to the teachings of Christ that is reading into, speaking into the care of his mother, which tells me there's something about us as followers of Christ that we make sure that we take care of those who are in faith, whether they are biologically belonging to us or not. One of the things of the community of faith is that when folks come in and they may have a father or may not, they may not have a mother or they may not have children, but in a community of faith, Jesus is, is breaking up the, the barriers to say, we want people to be family together and that you start taking care of yourself or taking care of others as you would your real mom. And so John gets this charge from Jesus himself, though there is a James, though there is a Joseph, they come to faith later on. The Bible tells us that James, Joseph, or specifically James, comes to faith after the resurrection. 
There's nothing like seeing your older brother rise again to settle all sibling squabbles right then and there. It's done. And James goes on, we believe, to write the book of James of which we're studying. But until that time, John is given the charge. This lets us know that what we have, you know, people say, well, we have a personal faith. Yes, we have a personal faith that has public implications. It has family implications. And so how we love God is going to show in how we care for our family. How we minister to them and how we want to reach out. And that might mean that there have to be some weaknesses that we reveal to one another. To allow that to happen. We keep on reading. What's the fourth statement? Well, we have two different gospel accounts. One is found in Matthew 27, verse 46. The other one is Mark chapter 15, verse 34. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As he is yelling this out in anguish, he is quoting Psalm chapter 22. Read verse 1 and 2. A psalm that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But as that writer was writing this, it became the very prayer of Jesus Christ. And that those who knew the scriptures, which many of them did, including the priests and the Pharisees, of that time would have known that when you start quoting the first part of that chapter then the rest of it is going to naturally flow and so as they hear my God my God why hast thou forsaken me they would have read and immensely gone through Psalm 22 which is an amazing portrayal of someone dying on a cross before the crucifix was ever invented I encourage you to read Psalm 22 uh, on your own and just know it was written hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross. But why is this being said? It's one of the few times where you hear Jesus refer to God with the term God, not my Father. The Bible says to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It is at this moment that when you think about all the sin of your life, I mean, uh, there are things that you admit to yourself, and there's things you don't want to think of who you are and what you have done, and you just multiply the secrets of your heart, the things of that cause shame, and you multiply at times your life, and then you take that's one life, and you multiply times just the everyone in this room. And what might that guilt be like? What that shame would be palpable? What would that be like to experience all the shame of everyone in this one room? But you multiply at times across the world of those who trust in Him, across history, and in that moment, in one time one person God in flesh he holds on and becomes the shame becomes the sin across the ages God being a holy God turns his face away God the son God the father who has never had even one grain of sand in, in between the father and son to cause division now all of a sudden has had love withdrawn in a way he's never experienced. 
my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was forsaken by God the Father so that God the Father could turn his face to you if you would cry out to him and say, God, I need a Savior. We keep on reading. We go to John. John chapter 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, in order that Scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now when he said, I thirst, he is quoting something from Psalm 69. Again, like Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before Jesus. Yet, it is being fulfilled and prayed by Jesus. Psalm 69, verse 21 I'll read verse 19 through 21. You know my approach, my shame, and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I'm in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. And here Jesus is just as he's going from cycle of suffocation to pain, back and forth, gasping and saying simply, I thirst. Jesus endured the thirsting so that if you would turn to Jesus Christ, you might have rivers of life flowing out of you. He endured the thirst so that you might have something within your life which would cause you to never thirst again. As he said to the woman in the Samaritan well in John 4, that if you will drink of the well that I have for you, you will never thirst again. He was not talking about a biological thirst but a spiritual emotional drive that will be satisfied in one person in one relationship that we will try to try to it's like sometimes you live in life and you just feel like you're you're passing from distraction from distraction to distraction as one of the person's celebrities said that they feel like they're going from this one distraction to another to realize that what Jesus has for you is not just distraction but to have real life to have joy in your life that carries you through all the stuff that comes your way because stuff's going to come your way and so if you're going to go through it you might as well go through it with life and purpose and joy we'll keep on reading John chapter 19, verse 30. And he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. His work, his life, what he came there to do, it is finished. What did he come here to do? The, the Bible tells us later that he came to, to defeat the work of Satan. It's interesting as we look at this, and I was sharing with some of the students earlier that the Hebrew day was a little bit different, that as the sun set and became dark, it was the beginning of the next day. So when it's like 7.30 or something, the sun's setting, it actually begins, for us would be Monday, what we think is Sunday night. And so as he is on the cross and it becomes dark from 12 to 3, but as he wraps up his life he's saying it is finished and soon Saturday comes that's why they had a rush break the the legs of the others to make sure that they died soon enough so that when Sabbath comes would be a day of rest they hurried it hurried to put him into a tomb before the Sabbath come because the Sabbath is the day of rest we get that from creation remember uh the seventh day God said 
It's finished on the sixth day. Let this be a day of rest, not because he was tired, but because it was done. On the Sabbath day, Jesus rested in the tomb. The point of it was, it's done. What's done? You being made right with him, with God. I've shared with you before that so many of our words, so much are, are because we are trying to make ourselves look good and to the court of approval to ourselves and to the watching world, to God himself, that we may be coming to church so that we would look good before God, uh, look good before our family. Some of you are here maybe because, well, mama said, you got to come. And it's not good to look bad before mama, all right? Uh, why? Because there's a part of us that we want to keep doing that, but when we read this and, and hear that Jesus is saying it is finished, he is saying simply all the things that you think are, are approving before God, you can't do on your own. God has provided it for you. So when Jesus cries, it is finished, what he's talking about is you being made right with God if you would just trust in what God has done and not try to be beautiful, try to be intellectual, try to be wise and, and try to be well-liked. God is saying, look, you know, those things are nice, they're, they're, you know, it's enjoyable, but they don't last. And God's made a way. <laughs> when he said it is finished, it is complete. So that we could have completed hearts. That's where the book of James has come in as we're studying what it means to have a complete heart. And then Luke chapter 23, verse 46. He cried, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When our Savior cried these last words from the cross, with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. The Bible goes on to say that when this happened, the sacred veil that separated God's presence in the most holy place in the temple from the holy place tore from the top to the bottom to say that there is now access with God. The temple is no longer needed. The veil of separation is no longer needed. It is done and has been committed to God's hands. Now, this is where we kind of end, right? We do the famous last words, and that's all that we can say. Every once in a while, someone will ask me, did you read this book about someone who talked about their end-of-life experience? And, and I've read a couple of those. But I always have just a little bit of, mm, maybe. Because when it's all said and done, the only one who's died and come back to tell us about it is Jesus. And if I ever wonder, what's it like after you die? Then you go to the one who did exactly that. So we're just going to break new ground. This is something we probably won't experience, but... What's it like to have your first words after you, you rise again? So let's go to John chapter 20. We've talked about the seven words on the cross, the seven statements on the cross. Now let's look at the first word of the resurrection. Look at uh, verse 11. They, they've, disciples, Peter, John, Mary, some of the others have seen the empty tomb. John saw the empty tomb, saw the clothes, and believed. Mary was not that quite that way. 
Verse 11, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting with the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord. I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That right there is the Easter Declaration. Now, when I read that, the first question that comes to my mind is, where was he? For I've not yet returned to the Father. And the simple answer to that for me is, I don't know. I don't know. The scripture doesn't say, Jesus didn't elaborate on where he was at. People imply different things, and that's what it is. Just an idea. But what I want to kind of focus on, he says, don't, don't cling to me. This is not about you clinging to me. In fact, I've got something I'd rather you do than clinging to me. Go and tell them, tell my brothers this statement. I'm running, returning to my father. This is the term they've heard him say. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray, he said, say this, say this. When you pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven. They've heard him in countless prayers refer to his Father. And now he's saying, I'm going to my Father and your Father. This is kind of a new instruction you don't see much in the Old Testament. Jesus saying, my God and your God. You see, you need to understand that before Jesus died and rose again, because of my sin, because of the fact that God created this world, and he created it for his glory and for himself, and that he is by far the most beautiful, the most wise, the most glorious God, but yet in this world that God has made for himself, we live this world for ourselves. It's all about our opinion, our idea, and when we take pictures, what do we look at to make a good photo? How did I look? Right? This is simple ways to demonstrate this, but it's, it's all about the fact that we live in the world that God made and we live it for ourselves. And this is an insult to the Most High God. It's one thing to slap me, it's another thing to slap a, a, a police officer or the president. But what happens when you slap God? The insult is eternal. And there is no degree of pride that's going to fix this. There's no degree of, I got to do good, be good, act good, because that's just another form of pride. I can't impress God. And we keep thinking that by going to church, by doing good, by being charitable, by being loving, that we can impress God. And the problem is pride. And it's just another form of pride. That doesn't work. 
And so God comes in, and there is a barrier between God and myself. And I may want God to be my God, but God says, you're not mine. You have an eternal sin against the eternal God, and there's a gulf between you and God himself. But when Jesus died on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He became that gulf. He became that sin, that eternal crime, and he satisfied it. When Jesus said it is finished on the cross, God returned the favor and said, yes, I agree by his resurrection. And so when he comes out from the dead, who on earth can bear the weight of so much shame, so much sin? Who can sustain that and survive? It's God himself through Jesus Christ to tell us that his life and love is greater than our sin and death. And so when he comes back, he can say to anyone who will listen, to go tell your brothers. Go tell the others that I'm returning to my father and your father. My God and your God. So let me ask you, is your father the father of Jesus Christ? Is the God of Jesus your God? Or is there a great gulf in between? Your dressed up, our dressed up pride isn't going to fix it. It takes grace how do you ruin prideful people it doesn't happen by insulting they just got to feed off of that you know you ruin prideful people by giving them things giving them things that they could never work for or earn and that's just what god does he says all you prideful ones would you confess your need for me and would you trust that I have satisfied them through Jesus Christ? And if you would just trust and let go of your pride and let me do this for you, that take what Jesus said and know that it's enough, then you can be right with him. And those are mighty, powerful last words. The resurrected words are the words that can heal our words. The resurrected words of Jesus, the words from God and to God, can heal our heart so that death itself no longer inflicts the heart that is healed by Jesus. I think about this this hymn Hello, Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovingly he greets us, scatters fear and gloom. Let the church with gladness hymns of triumph sing. For her Lord now liveth, death has lost its sting. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son. Endless is the victory, though our death has won. Let us pray.